Thank you for all of the interview suggestions you've sent to me. Today's story comes from a woman named Jo, who nominated her dearest friend. And as I read the details of her friend's incredible life story, I felt like I was reading a chapter in a history book about how the fight for women's equality in sports was won. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. You see, today's guest is known as the daughter of women's judo. That's because her mother, Rusty, was the mother of the movement, a trailblazer in the sport. She was the first woman to attain the rank of seventh degree black belt. She even teamed up with Billie Jean King to pass Title IX legislation in 1972 and was the driving force behind women's judo in the 1988 Olympic Games. So what's it like to be the daughter of a trailblazer? Well, in this case, you accomplish big things too. Today's guest is a fifth degree black belt. She competed internationally on the U.S. national judo team. She holds a doctorate in psychology, and she is also a senior special agent for the United States government. In fact, she was one of the lead investigators in the attacks on 9-11. Her name is Jean Kanagogi, and this is her story. Jean, welcome to the show. Hi, Candy. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I could just go on and on and on because you know what? You've had a pretty big life. Jean, whenever I ask guests on the show who their role models are, the number one answer, say it with me, is my mother, right? And you are a judo champion. Your mother, Rusty, is considered the mother of women's judo. You wrote a book with her called Get Up and Fight. And in it, you write that judo saved her life. Tell us that story. She grew up on the streets of Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York. And we all know Coney Island as an amusement park. But Coney Island was also a very rough and tumble neighborhood. Rusty's mom was busy working in a candy factory. Her father was absentee or when he was home. It was an extremely tumultuous childhood because the parents were always fighting. And in the book, we highlight how she used to have to duck while they were throwing things at each other or screaming at each other in Yiddish. So she spent many of her times out in the street. And that's a dangerous place for a kid to grow up on the street. So she wandered the boardwalk and the people that took her in as her babysitters and her newfound friends were unfortunately at the time, they were called people from the freak show. So the freak show was a show and it starred Milo, the mule face boy and the pinhead sisters. Now, granted, he had a face that was a little bit different and the pinhead sisters had little heads, but they treated her very fairly and they showed her that she was important and that she mattered. So there she started developing her character and knowing that you shouldn't treat anybody differently for how they look. It's how they make you feel, how they treat you. And she was appalled that people would point at them and laugh at them and make fun of them. So she started developing the superhero type of character that she wanted to protect those that couldn't protect and fend for themselves. Rusty got into some trouble with the law. She was put at the Brooklyn Women's House of Detention and she realized it was kind of one of these, the street life's not for me. She found a gentleman she got married to. She thought, this will straighten me out. I'll be a married woman. Well, unfortunately, she married somebody like her dad. He drank too much, but she, you know, she wanted the marriage to work. So they decided to get the support and help. So she went to Al-Anon to support him. And she thought he was going to AA. Of course, his bar was AA instead. At Al-Anon, she met a friend. 
she said to him, hey, you look like you work out. What do you do? And he said, well, I, I lift weights, I exercise, and I do judo. And he said, here, let me show you. He picked her up with a judo throw on his hip like she was a lightweight, like she was a piece of paper. And she was five foot nine, about 200 pounds, all muscle. And she's flying through the air with this smaller man lifting her up. At that point, Rusty told me, I have to know this sport. I have to know more about this culture. So it was amazing how this one little incident opened her eyes and turned her from being closed-minded to open-minded and wanting to learn more. She followed him to his judo class at the Prospect YMCA in Brooklyn. The judo instructor said, I'm sorry, no, no women are allowed in this. This is for men. She kept on showing up. She was persistent. She refused to give up. Finally, they said, fine, I'll let you in. And she started practicing judo. Fast forward, she's getting better in the sport. And in 1959, she went to go support her teammates as they were in a judo tournament up at the YMCA Judo Championships in Utica, New York. So she brought her judo gi, which is her uniform top. So they can warm up together. They can practice together. And so she always traveled with her judo gi. At that point, when she was on the mat warming up with one of her teammates, she heard a yell from across the mat, and they both looked over and saw it was one of her teammates that got injured. And they were like, oh, no, you know, what do we do? The coach right away grabbed Rusty and said, look, I'm going to put you in the tournament in his place. And it was a male-only tournament. There were no tournaments for women. So she went to the bathroom, and she took an ace bandage, and she wrapped up her chest to really disguise that she was a woman. And her hair was short. She was 5'9 and very strong looking. So nonetheless, she looked very androgynous at that point. She got onto that mat. It was her time to fight. And in judo, you have to have what they call grip fighting. You have to get your grip. So it's almost like a fist fight and she's battling for her grip. Well, she finally got her grip and she came in on her favorite throw and executed her favorite throw with the full resistance of her opponent, but his resistance wasn't good enough. And she threw him for a full point. And in judo, you can win by throwing somebody for a full point. She literally smashed him through the mat. And she was so excited. She was like, oh my goodness, I won. Oh crap, I won. A medal was placed around her neck, a gold medal. And she thought, wow, this is great. I'm getting a medal instead of a citation for fighting. As she was leaving the locker room, the tournament director approached her and said to her, excuse me, a word, please. And he very accusatorily said to her, are you a girl? I know you're a girl. And she stood, stopped in her tracks and said, I am a woman. And he said, well, girls can't compete. We need that medal back. No girls are allowed. Everything inside of her was shaking. Her world was rattling. She's thinking, he wants to take my medal, my very first win, something I trained for, something I earned, and he wants to take it away from me because I'm a woman. And she took that medal off her neck. At that point, she declared that no woman will ever suffer such an indignity ever again. Not on my watch. I am going to change that. I don't know how, but this is my purpose. And when I do speaking engagements, I talk about finding your purpose. One of the Japanese philosophies that I speak of is something called Ikigai. Ikigai is finding your purpose, finding your why, your purpose for existence. And it's four components. It's what am I good at? 
What do I love to do? What does the world need? And what can I make a few bucks at? In 1962, she went to Japan to study judo. This is the home of judo. She studied at the Kodokan, which is considered the mecca of judo. When she got there, they put her on the women's side. And she loved it because she got to learn the judo kata, the basic judo techniques. But it wasn't the combative side. It wasn't where the men can fight with each other. It was the kata with more cooperation. But she wanted to fight. So after showing up and showing up, just like Rusty does, they finally let her into the men's side of the dojo, which is the judo school. And she embodied that Japanese mantra, fall down seven, literally, and get up eight. One of her friends went home on break and his father said, hey, I see on the news that there's an American woman training at the Kodokan. And he very proudly said, yeah, she's my friend. I know her. And he looked at her. He said, you should marry her and she'll give you big, strong babies. So I call him dad. <laughs> because that's exactly what he did. What is it like, Jean, to be the child of a trailblazer like your mom? At first growing up, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know. I just thought it was normal. It was normal to see my mother on television alongside with Billie Jean King fighting for Title IX, fighting for equal sport, equal rights in sports. I thought it was normal when I wanted to be on the boys wrestling team in high school and my mother sent me to school with a piece of paper to give to the principal and the wrestling coach. And, and then there it was. I was. It was normal for me to be accepted on the team. I thought it was normal for all of these sports figures and George Steinbrenner and, and all of these people to call the house. I thought this was normal. My mother decided that it was time for me to learn about discrimination. This is not normal. It's not normal because you're a girl to be told no, only because you're a girl. She said, if there's something that you want to do and you are just as good, if not better, then you should have that same opportunity. And she said that the reason why we are fighting for equality is because we deserve it. We're not demanding anything more, and we certainly will not settle for anything less. Did you feel pressure, Jean, to become an expert at judo, to become a champion yourself? Billie Jean King says pressure is a privilege. And I thoroughly believe that because the bar is set high enough where you can reach it if somebody is mentoring you and knows in your abilities. So did I feel pressure growing up and having to be a judo expert? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, if I wanted my mother's attention, my father's attention, they were always at our judo school. They were always teaching. So of course I wanted to be in it. But then I realized when I was there, I was making more friends and having a judo family. So yes, the pressure was there but you were pushed. You were pushed to the best of your ability. And also, it's not just an I, it's a we, it's an everybody. She taught me that you have to have a team, you have to have support. You cannot do it alone in this world. But if you have to stand alone and nobody else is standing next to you, if you stand alone and you're doing the right thing, then stand there and be proud and be strong. You got your BS and your master's from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. What was your goal after graduation? Did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Well, at first, I thought I wanted to be on the cover of the Wheaties boxes. 
That's that's the only thing I thought. And when I was a kid, I also wanted to be the first woman baseball player because I played softball and I, I wanted to be the first woman baseball player. But that changed. And I wanted to do something to make a difference. And that's how I got into law enforcement. Because being in law enforcement, there's so many components. There's the social side, there's the enforcement side, there's the human factor. And I figure through my sports upbringing, I have enough international experience where I can understand different cultures and get along with so many other people and also protect the United States of America. So that's why I went into law enforcement. You entered the U.S. Customs Service, and I'm going to guess there were not a lot of women. That's right. There were not a lot of women. And one of the challenges is when I was down at the academy, and this is how Rusty influenced me, we were doing this hand-to-hand combat tactics. So some of the ladies asked me to help them with their fighting skills because I have all of this fighting experience. And I said, okay, well, what percent do you want me to fight you at? To We were doing a weapon retention drill. So they said, no, no, you. I want you to go 90% at us and, and fight us like you would fight on the street. And, you know, we want to work on our skills. Well, I did. And I ended up knocking them both down, taking away their, their training weapons and escaping. They didn't talk to me after that. They were so angry. So I called my mom. I said, mom, what do I do? This is ridiculous. She said, you don't need friends like that. They'll only get you hurt or killed. What an interesting thing for her to say. Were you surprised by that? I wasn't. And, you know, my mother was very, very matter of fact. So she told you as it is, no sugarcoating. Uh, I got my 25 cents worth out of the payphone when I called her. (laughs) After that, I left the custom service. I stayed in the government and I became a special agent for an agency and, uh, Not long after that were the attacks of September 11th. Nobody was prepared for this. After the attacks, I spent about six months on that pile digging while it was still on fire. And I was also following leads as part of the investigation. One of the things that really helped me is when I had time, my parents were in Brooklyn. And when I had time, I would go to my parents' house. My eyes were literally burned shut from the smoke and from the soot and the dust. So I sat in the chair in the, in the kitchen. My father would clean my eyes just as he cleaned my feet coming home from the beach when I was six years old. He sat there cleaning my eyes just very methodically, just so sweet. And my mother stayed there in my ear talking to me. You get back there. You keep digging. You don't stop looking until you find the last person. You follow that lead. You never give up. You get up and fight. I was trying to tell her about everything that I saw, everything that I witnessed, but my mouth was moving, but words couldn't come out. My throat was pretty much burned and my skin was charred. I was coughing every time I tried to speak, but my mother had me focus on my get up and fight. In Japanese, we call that the kogeke, your fight, your inner fight. And she put me back there and told me, you're cleaned up, you're ready to go, keep going. You are also a volunteer for the Federal Law Enforcement's Officers Association, and that's where you're the Director of Mental Health and Peer Support Services. After the events of the last few years in the United States, I'm guessing that you have been very, very busy. Tell us a little bit about your work and also put your finger on the pulse of law enforcement. As of about two weeks ago, we've had 121 law enforcement suicides that we know of. 
that is astronomical, that is unacceptable. Mental health matters. And I'm working with the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association to smash the stigma. We want to get rid of that suck it up stigma. We want to bridge the gap and make mental health resources available for law enforcement. We want to make sure that you're not afraid to fill out that form on your background that says that I have sought help in mental health and, and not be concerned about your security clearance, about your job. So we're working with different agencies that are in charge, and these agencies actually care. The other thing I'm super proud of is recently S-1502, which is the Confidential Opportunities for Peer Support, just passed the House, 434 to 3. It also passed the Senate unanimously. What that does is it allows confidential peer support for federal law enforcement this is monumental because that does not exist. I applaud both sides of the House because this is a bipartisan supported bill in which I actually helped write some of the language. So when this gets signed into law, you will be hearing somebody from New Jersey jumping up and down screaming hooray because this is a major victory for law enforcement and for humankind. Because believe it or not, we're human beings behind this badge and we have feelings and we see the underbelly of society law enforcement experiences about 800 trauma incidents in their career, where most people experience two or three. And we need help. We need to talk about it. You have been a special agent for decades. What do you wish you knew, Dr. Jean, when you first got started? How to fill out a form to fill out a form. <laughs> There's a true answer. <laughs> <laughs> that, I wish I knew more about human behavior when I first started. I think I could have made a little bit of a better impact earlier on in my career. Now, I have absolutely no regrets because I followed the course of my career and learned as I went. But if I had known everything I know now early in my career, I think I could have helped more people along the way. You know, when you think about the riots of the summer of 2020, what do police officers say to you about feeling the respect that they feel that they deserve to have based on the kind of work they do and having lost some of that as a result of the last couple of years? They say that we are stronger together and they feel that they still want to uphold the law and do their mission, but they need the help of the communities that they serve. They need to have these dialogues and they are hungry to have these dialogues with community leaders. Take out the politics, take out the anger, take out even the overwhelming emotions of victimology. Oh, this happens to me only because. Oh, this, why is all this happening to me? Let's change the neuroplasticity into a growth mindset as opposed to why is this happening to me? Let's say, okay, this is happening. This is how we deal with it. And having these conversations, breaking down the barriers of race and culture, making everybody stronger together, these police officers will have the respect and the communities will have the respect. Teach the young men and women when a police officer approaches them, don't put that police officer in fear. We're human beings. Are you telling me when I come up to you to talk to you, if you put your hand deep in your pocket, turn your body and, look, and pretend you're about to pull out a weapon, what does my mind go to? Where do I think? I'm terrified as a human being, but I'm also trained how to react to that. So let's have these conversations. 
you don't do this, we don't do this. And same thing with the police. I believe that obstacles are opportunities and they're always there to teach us something. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I push it aside. I move over it. I you jump do a judo it. move. I, I do a judo move. I throw it, arm lock it. But really when an obstacle, it depends what the obstacle is. If the obstacle is a person and standing in my way to what I want to achieve, say I want to get promoted and there's one person that is just adamant and, and doesn't want me to get promoted, there are ways to address that obstacle, to find out what is it that at the core of that person that is of their concern. And, you know, using emotional intelligence and using skills of emotional intelligence, you can actually find, even if you agree to disagree, you can still work together. But obstacles are opportunities because it gives you a way to figure out. It's a challenge. It's a puzzle. Figure out how to either get through it or walk with it. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? And Dr. Jean, this can be personal or it can be professional. I have two. Uh, I'm going to quote Rusty on two of them. Never settle for the morsels. Go get what you want. The other one is in life, either you are the hammer or the nail. Be the hammer. Final question. In your opinion, what is the definition of success? What does it mean to you? Success to me is my significance. I judge my significance by how many people I can positively impact. This mission of taking Rusty's story of get up and fight and springboarding it to inspire people, to empower people, to find their get up and fight, and to show people how just an ordinary person can change the world, can change their world or the world for so many. Every little girl that puts on a judo gi is because of Rusty. So I'm carrying that. My success is taking what my mother did and really just inspiring so many more. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. Dr. Jean Kanakogi, thank you for being our guest this week on the story behind her success. Thank you. And that's the story behind her success for this week. If you know a woman I should interview for the show, reach out and tell me about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. There's also a full library of stories for you to listen to anytime you need a little dose of inspiration. Follow me on Facebook at Candy O'Terry Official and on all other platforms at Candy O'Terry. And whether you're listening on one of our radio affiliates or from your smartphone, we'll have a fresh episode for you next week on the story behind her success. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise.